0: Welcome to Board is Anonymous, episode 198, PAX Unplugged Awards. We'd like to thank our brand new Patreon backers, Erskine and Scott. You guys rock!
1: You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com.
0: Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast of board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. Anthony, it is finally said and done. PAX Unplugged 2018 has come to an end. And now we can revel in the glory of what was and finally get some sleep because it was a thing, my friend. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Sleep. What is this sleep you speak of? I don't know. It's funny because we we kind of have an unspoken rule when we go to cons that we will sleep. We're not going to stay out too late. We're not going to be crazy. We're going to get sleep and be awake and ready to roll every day. And part of that is we have a bunch of meetings and we're demoing stuff all day and we're on our feet the whole time. But PAX is somehow very different. Like it's, I almost feel like we just go there as normal gamers. It's like the only con we do that. We're like, we're going to go, we're going to play some games. We have a few meetings. We'll do a few demos. We'll do a few recordings. But mostly we're just going to play some games, which means we stayed up way too late. (laughs) Got no sleep. (laughs) Which is awesome, but I'm really tired. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it definitely becomes an endurance test as the convention goes on. There's so much going on. And I think just in general, the city of Philadelphia, since it's always going, there's people on the street, there's people in the hotels still playing games, the lights are on, the stores are still open, the restaurants are still open. It feels like you should still keep going. You should still push it a little bit, get another game to the table. And I think each and every night, it's that kind of really difficult decision, whether you want to go to sleep or you want to push past it and get just one more game to the table. You know, it was a great time. The weather was more or less uh, hospitable throughout the whole time. A little windy early on, a little rainy at the end, but temperature was in a good spot. The hotels were all pretty close. PAX Unplugged, for the vast majority of the time, with the exception of the last day, was open till midnight, although even on the last day, they weren't pushing people out of the gaming at 6 o'clock, which was really, really cool of them to do. And everyone was there, publishers, producers, board game people, media people, everyone playing games together at the same tables, especially at the first look section, was really a phenomenal sight to be seen. And obviously, if you haven't already, check out our Facebook account. I logged all of our pictures there over the multiple days that we were there. And it was honestly just a really great time overall.
1: Yeah, yeah. And by popular demand, I, I saw that you captioned them all too. So you can actually see what the games are. Because every every con we go to, we're like, here's 50 pictures of games. And every comment is like, what game is this? What game is this? So <laughs> asked and answered, guys. <laughs>
0: there you go. Yeah, typically those cons just way too much pax is definitely much more of a chilled environment so please check out that please check out our website boardgamersanonymous.com. we'll have some written content up there for you for some of these games that we saw at pax and got a chance to review in more detail but let's talk about everything that happened during pax 2018 their second convention it was all about the gaming and some
1: other odds and ends so anthony's Let's talk about some of
0: the odds and ends.
1: Odds and ends it is. Yeah, I mean, PAX is such a unique experience because when you go to a PAX, you are there with not just board gamers, you're there with PAX fans. So you have the people who are there for the pins and the people there for the merch. And I walk by the merch line repeatedly waiting for it to get somewhat shorter. It never happens. And so that's a little bit different than like you go to a Gen Con or an Origins. You don't have that unique loyalty that people have to the con, to the brand, which is really cool. And at the same time, you've got Philadelphia surrounding the convention, which just adds that much more character to it. You know, you go to Columbus, you go to Indianapolis, and those cities certainly have character, but that character tends to go to sleep around 9.30. So like you said, Chris, there's not a ton to do later at night. You kind of just wander back to the hotel and maybe play a game, maybe go to bed. So PAX is definitely... The kind of con designed to keep you awake, designed to keep you engaged. And with all those, you know, excited PAX fans, it's, it's it's pretty cool.
0: 2018, the second year of PAX, there were some differences that we saw from last year to this year. First off, it was a year in which BGG Con wasn't occurring at exactly the same time. So we got to see a lot more traditional board gamers, people from our BGG time, And that was a lot of fun. So a lot more games actually got to the table and a lot heavier games got to the table, which was fantastic. And a lot more vendors got to the convention than had done previously. It was a larger turnout, at least as far as I can tell and pretty much everyone we talked to. A lot more vendors. Some cases, the space that they utilized was smaller. We talked to a lot of vendors and that seemed to be the way to go. And they seem to be a challenge as far as what games to put out, because last year, a lot more PAX people that typically attend those video game conventions come to PAX Unplugged. This year, a lot more board game people, a lot later in the season. And obviously, with the holidays fastly approaching us, a lot more people looking to make purchases, especially Essen game purchases.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was funny last year. We talked to a lot of these publishers, you know, especially the ones who have the strategy games, and some of them were decently disappointed by what they were able to sell and what they weren't able to sell. And I think part of that was just the audience that was there last year. I don't think we talked to anybody this year that was like disappointed or in the middle in terms of how the con went. I think not only the bigger crowd, but more the board gamer crowd and the fact that people kind of catered what they brought to that crowd made it, you know, a much more successful con from that perspective. And then from every, you know, the people who are there's perspective, there was a ton of stuff and you didn't have, you know, it's not gen cons. There's not like thousands of new releases that people rush for that all sell out. There was a handful of new things, a handful of recently released things. Most of those things you could get the first day or two and, you know, lots of gaming to be had after that. So it was pretty cool.
0: Yeah. I think there was a nice mix. So some of the publishers were a little concerned that they weren't getting the, best diversity, at least as many PAX people as they did last year, but there was a good number of PAX people there. Every publisher that I spoke to, and I spoke to a good, good number of them, said that this was at least twice as good as last year as far as sales was concerned. Some publishers went even as far as, say, it was four or five times better as far as sales was concerned. So I think going forward, if that information got its way back to PAX, and I think it did, that we will see this convention pretty much around the same time next year. Obviously, they don't want to compete with BGG. So overall, excellent crowd, tremendous number of gamers. Obviously, we've been promoting the convention throughout the year, so glad to see everyone at the table. Publishers loved it. Gamers loved it. And a lot of publishers who weren't able to attend, just by the very fact that they got their games in the first look section, or in the PAX library were very happy that their games got attention, especially during this sales and Black Friday and holiday season. So a lot of goodness on that. There were some logistical issues, obviously, with dealing with the crap. PAX has a particular way of dealing with their
1: people coming in and out. Anthony, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's the only con I've ever been to where they make you queue up to get in in the morning. And this year they added metal detectors on top of that. As a security measure. And I mean, we never waited that long, but we also never tried to get there early. So I know people who tried to get in early, if you're getting in line for a tournament registration or whatnot, you had to get there at a decent time and you had to stand in line for a good hour or so. Now, I don't know how different that is than sitting on the floor in front of the door at <laughs> in Gen Con, but you're standing in line, it's all concrete, there's metal detectors, so you got your bag checked. and None of that's that frustrating, even though I complained about it a lot. Um, but the part that ended up frustrating me and some other people is you got to do it every single time you go in. So you're in Philly. You're going to want to leave the building and get some food or go back to your hotel and drop off your stuff or go get some fresh air. And Every time you come back, you got to wait in the line again. So I, I mean, I appreciate um, them taking the effort on the security side. I don't know, you know. I don't know. I I, I don't want to make, you know, assumptions or aspersions about what what's necessary, what's not necessary. They know their audience and their crowd better than anybody else. But it was a bit of a pain in the butt as just somebody who had to wait in that line um, after last year, not having to wait in the line, at least not after the first day.
0: Yeah. So other than the lines, other than the metal detectors, which unfortunately becoming more and more a mainstay, great crowd this year. They actually flipped the sections So the vendors were on the opposite side of the hall. The first look section was on the opposite from last year. The first look section was dramatically bigger than it was last year. The library section was dramatically bigger than it was last year. So a lot of gaming occurred and PAX went to, you know, great expense to make everyone feel welcome. There was multiple, multiple enforcers or they call them enforcers they are basically volunteers that are there to help. And, Whenever I was at a game, I saw one or two enforcers walking around some point with a sign saying, what can I help you with? What can I answer? So bravo to the enforcers and the volunteers that were there to help everyone kind of navigate this situation. And obviously, we mentioned this last year. The first look section, phenomenal. Having those games from Essen and just having a wealth of games and more or less having volunteers being able to teach games or at least guide us through part of the process was fantastic. We went from game to game to game, you know, and on a pretty fast clip. Now there were some situations where the volunteer teachers did not know the games at the table. and We had to kind of like chug through the rule book, which was not great, but it was still great that a lot of those games were covered by the teachers because not everyone is as qu- equipped as us to kind of like read through a 20 page rule book and not break down crying in the fetal position <laughs> at some point. Yep. I highly recommend if you go to PAX, as I, as I mentioned last year and I mentioned again this year, the first look section is really invaluable. Having someone teach you the game is invaluable. Having Anthony and Eddie with me was invaluable because <laughs> they taught the games when there weren't teachers around. So I got to sit back and enjoy playing some games, but I will mention that once I did learn the games, I was a good Samaritan and I went around and I taught other people games. And we'll talk more about that because once I learned how to play Obsession, I became obsessed with it. And I taught several other people how to play it at, I would say, grudging delight of other people who are waiting for me to jump back into my own game. But yep. well, <laughs> first section, awesome, great job. Definitely try to learn those heavy games because- there was one funny situation where I found an enforcer that was teaching the game or was supposed to teach the game. And I won't mention what the game was, but he was like, Oh uh, yeah. I don't really know how to play that game. I know I was supposed to teach that game, but I really not sure, but you don't want to play that game. It has four rondelles. I'm telling you four rondelles, that's not a game you want to play. And I'm like, yeah, it is. It's <laughs> like, Oh no, no, no. It also has worker placement too. And I'm like, well, that sounds even cooler now. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, like, the more he tried to dissuade me from wanting to play this, what seemed to be an even cooler, you know, strategy game, you know, I was like, I really, really, really want to play it now. But unfortunately, there was no one to teach it. And I think he mentioned it had 46 pages, which typically would not dissuade me from it. But unfortunately, I didn't have Anthony or Eddie around at that time. But overall, for me, excellent convention. Best of the year. Really, really thrilled about it. Um, Great job, everyone around. And it was so wonderful to see so many of my friends from all the different game groups. We had the vegan board gamers were there, which is always great to see them. There was so many of the meetup groups from New Jersey that I'm either a organizer or a member of. There was all the Philadelphia groups, which I'm a member organizer from new york new jersey pennsylvania washington dc maryland delaware obviously it is somewhat local and drivable from everyone in the northeast area so we saw a lot of people from those areas but people came from around the country and around the world and it was so wonderful great diversity love to see those people love to have them at the table fantastic thank you pax 2018 unplugged was fantastic Every gamer there, great time, loving sitting, playing the games with all of you. Even got some games with some of our Patreon backers, which was great. And I guess the only thing to talk about more would probably be the games, Anthony. Yeah, yeah, let's get into it. All right, so let's talk about some of the hotness that PAX 2018 Unplugged had to offer. So why don't you start us off with one of the games that you love a lot, Anthony. It's not just hotness, it's an obsession with a really... Strange name and uh, strange deck titles.
1: Yeah, yeah. Chris is obsessed with the name of this game, so it's called Keyforge. If you haven't heard of it, um, I don't. I don't think it's that weird, but maybe, maybe you can elaborate why it's weird.
0: <laughs> I think it's weird because Keyforge is literally one of the most generic names possible for a fantasy card game, and yet each and every deck has the most absolutely absurd name. So. The irony there is not lost upon me. You know, it might be lost upon Anthony a
1: bit. <laughs> I'm blinded by my love for this game. Yeah, this game launched uh, like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and I've been playing it a whole bunch back here in Pittsburgh. And so it's I didn't realize this because my local store ordered like a thousand boxes of this thing, like some crazy numbers who they still have it, but the it's generally hard to find and people are very much into it so this was one of the hottest games of the con if only because a lot of vendors had copies of it um not the not the starter sets but a lot of the decks there was a lot of tournaments going on uh fantasy flight was there demoing the game which always had a huge crowd around it so keyforge was everywhere we saw people playing it all over the place and we even managed to play a game i taught chris the game and he was fine with it right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's my review <laughs> <laughs> it's fine but yeah it's it's just it's blowing up right now whether it's the hotness fad probably or if it has you know legs on it and it'll be around for a little while uh, remains to be seen but at the moment i'm very much enjoying and as are a lot of other people so that was a uh, one of the hot games at, at uh, pax this year
0: yeah and we should mention that our friend greg who is amongst our many friends that were on our facebook photos actually won one of the uh, Key Forge tournaments. So congratulations to him. And yeah, it's it's a fine game. Like you said, (laughs) it might last longer than the uh, jokes that I will have as far as the names are concerned. But we'll see which one lasts longer, the game or the names. So that is definitely one of the games. Anthony, a game that I'd like to talk about is a game that I've already talked about because I was lucky enough to be at Double Exposure's DexCon this past year and got a chance to play an early version of Quacks of Quinlenburg which actually at the time was Quacksaber.Quindlenburg. So take it as you word, English or German version. Quacks is a fun and fantastic game from our friends at Northstar Games, and it's all about pressing your luck, picking up the right combinations to build your bag up,
1: and really really enjoyed this game how about you anthony yeah i mean i haven't i actually haven't had a chance to play it yet i have i have a german you have
0: two versions
1: i know right (laughs) i had a buddy who did an order from like amazon.de and you could get this in german for like twenty dollars and i was like sure i'm all in on that and then i get the copy and the game is mostly language independent but just the german on the box and a little bit of german on the player aids and everything else and, and the rules printed out and people were just like i don't know i don't know so Now I have the English version, and I very much look forward to getting this to the table when people won't give me grief about it not being in English. Welcome to Pittsburgh, I guess. (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, But yeah, I'm really excited for it. Everything I've seen about it, everything I've heard, uh, it looks great.
0: Yeah, and especially since it's by North Star Game, you're getting a good production and a good price for the game. So if you haven't checked this game out before, definitely check it out. It's really, really a fine game. So, Anthony, a game that we both got a chance to play for the very first
1: time, Azul Stained Glass. Yeah, and I think the name's even longer than that, Um, but I didn't write it down here in the spreadsheet. Um, It's like Azul Stained Glass of Cintra something, something. Azul 1.5, I guess I'd call it. It's not quite like a full sequel because it uses the basic mechanics of Azul, but it adds a few things to it that makes it more interesting. And this game technically launched, I guess, last week. That's when all the stores started getting it. And Plan B was not at PAX this year, but Cool Stuff brought a lot of copies of this game, enough that they still had it at the end of the weekend. So I picked mine up on Friday, you picked yours up on Sunday, everybody got this game, and we get to play it. I think, at least from my side, I really, really liked it. I've always liked Azul, uh, but it, it just didn't have that little extra strategy bite, I guess, where you get to make... You have various different decisions that you can make. Frequently in Azul, you have one or two good options and you take them. Sometimes you have to choose and plan a little bit, but often it's about that draft and what's out there when it comes to you. With stained glass, you have a, a little bit more options there because you're moving your little worker down the line of these different glass columns that you're building. And similar to you know, a regular Azul, you're trying to fill out these columns, but they have different numbers of you know glass pieces on them. And you can you know, try to complete all the ones up front, or you can jump ahead and try to complete ones later down. Then you have to reset back, basically pass your turn to reset back to the beginning. You score points, not just based on the one you complete, but based on all the ones you've completed after that on the line. So you maybe you know jump ahead and kind of, I'm going to go do some of these at the end so that I can go back at the front and score more points. Lots of lots of really cool decisions here. And yet it still doesn't take any longer than regular Azul. It's still quick and breezy i dig it i'm I'm glad i picked it up
0: yeah it surprised me because i like azul and i think it's a fine abstract and no matter what people say we're talking about strangeness as far as names are concerned it's still azul stained glass or what looks to be really something you have to keep away from children because these yeah. <laughs> pieces look really
1: tasty. <laughs> yeah, they they do. They legit look like uh, like hard candies, like Jolly Ranchers or something. I don't know. I like this
0: one better because of a couple things. First off, the board is in static, so when you do complete a section, the pieces flip over, and you complete the section again. They they pop away. You actually have you have a figure that determines where you can place a piece. That figure can be moved, and you can actually pass. So you may not be held to a particular bad selection. So that was a lot of fun. This kills Azul for me. I picked up a copy, and I really think if you like Azul or you didn't like it enough, this is probably something that you want to check out because it just does something more than Azul. So definitely a good successor. All right, Anthony, we have something also to talk about from our friends at CMON, something that we demoed at Gen Con,
1: that was a little bit of the hotness here for PAX Unplugged. Yeah, Victorian Masterminds. This is the new game from the uh, design combo of Eric Lang and Antoine Bowza, And it is, I don't know, it's like this weird steampunky type of thing taking place in Victorian England. And you're trying to build these contraptions, I guess, is kind of the theme of it. Like any CMON game, it's decently overproduced. So you have these all these different plastic pieces of different monuments, and you're building out your contraption with all these little cardboard bits that fit together. It looks amazing, it has great table presence. We played one round, I think, uh, or one cycle of the game, whatever that's called, back at Gen Con. And we're not blown away, if only because I think the initial score was some of us had points, and some of us did not have points. And I don't remember (laughs) who didn't have points, but he's on the podcast. Uh. <laughs> Simon had it for sale for the first time here at uh, uh, PAX. It's not coming out, I think, for, I think he said two or three more months. So early next year, they had a bunch of copies. People were able to pick it up. They were able to demo it and pick it up. And um, therefore, you saw a lot of copies kind of floating around on the convention hall. I haven't had a chance to play this yet. Looking forward to getting in the table here in the next couple of weeks. And um, we'll hit you guys up with a review uh, once we've played a full game. And I'll let you know if people score points <laughs> by the end of it. <laughs> hey
0: (laughs) another game that was of the hotness especially since it was out and available especially at the first look section was architects of the west kingdom yeah
1: yeah another game i have not yet played because this one i think released the day before pax or maybe the week before but a lot of people are talking about this one it is by the designer of raiders of the north sea which was you know nominated for the spiel des yarh the first Kickstarter game, I believe, ever nominated for any of those awards. So it is kind of has a place in that pantheon of Kickstarter games. Uh Renegade publishes these now. And people are saying this is one of the better entry to midweight worker placement games out there. And that has me intrigued. So hoping to get this one to the table soon as well. I know a couple people with copies and uh get a chance to see if that is true. <laughs> and uh, um, if not, why not? We asked people at the convention about the game and they
0: said that the closest they can kind of offer to us was it was similar in weight and scale to stone age. So if you're looking for that type of complexity and entry level kind of worker placement game, this this might be for you. All right. So that's on a little bit of the lighter side let's talk about on a little bit of the heavier side and something that you got to the table a bunch anthony
1: yes this is a game i've had for a little while um i was lucky enough to get an early copy for the review we actually did a few episodes back it's Teotihuacan, but pax was the first time anybody in the u.s at least in mass could buy the game so the publisher was there they had a few copies it was in the first look section those tables are always full uh handful of retailers had it as well I think it's trickling out there as we speak but this is one of the hotter euros of the year and I absolutely love it so uh, this is by um, you know the one of the designers behind uh, Zolkin and all those other games that utilize all these different mechanics in clever ways and it, it's basically a giant rondelle in which you're trying to build a pyramid and uh, level up your your little part of the Aztec Empire and score the most points. And this was actually an interesting game that we sat down to play because not only were were we busy playing another game at the time, so we weren't sure if we'd be able to get over there in time to play it. And this was on our list. We wanted to make sure we played this game because I was the only one who had. And mm-hmm. but Jason from Every night is game Night, who's you know he's from Connecticut, so we drove down. We got to hang out a bunch, which was awesome. He's like, we're playing this. He went over there. He camped it out. He made sure nobody sat down for like the 30 minutes it took us to wrap up Barrage. And we managed to get that in. So you can actually kind of hear some of the in-game updates from that on the Every Night it's Game Night post-show recording because he was recording while we were playing. But yeah, it was great. Like he liked it and he doesn't like Euros. So there you go.
0: (laughs) It was my first play of the game and it did have a lot of feel of Zulkin as far as there was some decent amounts of complexity to the strategy, but it really came down to very simple gameplay. So building up the pyramid typically came down to making sure that your die gave you the opportunity to get wood and get stone to get over to that spot. And if you were fortunate and the right tile was out there, you're going to score a good number of points. If it's not the exact right title, you're going to still score a lot of points and there are a lot of ways to score Different victory points, and there are some other options in the game as far as ascending your dice and such. You do have to feed your workers with cocoa, which surprisingly enough, Anthony did not have a problem with. So he might have to revisit Agricola at some point because that criticism kind of left him when he got to play Tetsuakin. But it's definitely a
1: fine game and something I hope to get to the table again at some point. Yeah, but let's keep in mind that the high score in Tantahuan was 150. What is a typical score in Agricola? It's like 11. It's all about feeding your family. And that's really the most important thing. <laughs> I already do so... that. I don't want to play a game about it. <laughs> all right, leave it at that. It's good.
0: Also on the hotness and the game that sold out almost immediately was Terraforming Mars Colony the new expansion for the ever-growing Terraforming Mars universe. I have still have not gotten this game to the table because you cannot find this expansion anywhere. Anthony, you do have a copy of this, and you did
1: get a chance to play this, right? Yeah, yeah. I actually reviewed it last week, so if you guys want to hear my like, full thoughts on this, um, head back there. I think it's the best expansion in terms of adding things to the game that's been released yet. Probably the most essential expansion right now is the Prelude just to speed things up a little bit early game. But this one's good. It adds a lot it more thinking, more options and stuff to do on your turn if you're kind of waiting people out. Really, really good expansion. So definitely worth checking out if you're a big Terraforming Mars fan and you were a little burned by uh, Venus kind of petering out over the last few months.
0: Yeah, the expansions up to this point have been more of the same, which is not a bad thing. It's just more of the same. So... Colonies was something I was looking forward to for quite some time. Really sad, but happy that it kind of sold out at the convention. And I'm sure my game group will get it to the table pretty soon. So looking forward to getting a chance to check that out. Well, Anthony, another big game at the convention was probably the most unique game of the convention because of its use of technology. And that's Chronicles of Crime, a game that we actually got to demo way back at Gen
1: Con. Yeah, yeah. We first saw this game exactly a year ago at PAX, and we got a chance again over the summer to to give it a go. It's finally, I think it was a Kickstarter, so people have just been getting it recently, but they had it here for sale so everybody could pick it up. And I'm pretty sure they sold out of it, which is awesome. But this is just a really, really cool deduction case-solving game, you know, like where Detective is this big behemoth three-hour, like Jason says, it's like doing your homework, but in a fun way, right? <laughs> I added in a fun way part um, <laughs> Chronicles of Crime is uh, is a much more uh, streamlined, direct kind of, you know, sit down, quick play kind of a thing with uh, with your friends. And that's a good thing. So it's it's a lot of fun. Has some interesting elements, little VR glasses that are a bit of a gimmick, but still fun to use somehow. So it's pretty cool. And it's going to have a lot of extra content coming out. So it's not one of those like, hey, solve these five cases and you're done forever. It's there's more stuff coming, which is a, it's a big part of it. Yep. Excellent. All right,
0: Anthony, so a couple other games that we didn't get a chance to get to the table, but were still pretty hot at PAX. So why don't you take us through those?
1: Yeah, so these are a few others that were around being sold. Um, You could get them, but we, we didn't necessarily get a chance to play them or check them out. Uwe Rosenberg's Rick Holt. By all accounts, this is a fairly light Rosenberg game, maybe along the lines of like a new sword in terms of complexity. I've heard mixed things. We have not yet had a chance to play it, but we will certainly review it as soon as we do have a chance. Uh, to check it out. Tokyo Metro uh, by Jordan Draper. So he launched the the whole Tokyo trilogy of games on Kickstarter and those shipped recently. But this is the first chance I think most people who didn't back that had a chance to buy uh, Tokyo Metro, which is this kind of 18xx-ish style train game um, of the Tokyo Metro system played on this fantastic cloth mat. I have not played my copy yet, but it looks really, really cool. Battlestar Galactica, uh, the new Flight Path game from um, Ares Games is—they had copies of that there for the first time, so that that one was first available. It looks fantastic, beautiful paint job. Definitely more on par with you know the job Fantasy Flight did with X Wing than with like Attack Wing in terms of quality of the components. And we already know the Flight Path system is awesome, so very much looking forward to trying this as well. And then. Just wanted to throw in an honorable honorable mention because this game was already the big hotness at Gen Con, but seemed to still have a little bit of hotness left in its tank um, for packs three months later, and that's Root. So we walked over to the Root booth Sunday morning, and they had a sign up with you know this is what we sell, and they'd crossed out literally everything. They had nothing left, not even T-shirts. Everything was sold out. It was one of those bittersweet things. Uh, Patrick Leader, he was telling us like. It's awesome we sold everything, but we've been, you know, just kind of hanging out for the last 36 hours because we don't have any stock to sell. That is a hot game. We actually got a chance to play it Thursday night. I played it a whole bunch, but I got to teach a bunch of people who had not played it previously. And, uh, yeah, it's not going anywhere. And there's more content coming next year. So that is definitely a big hot game for a while to come.
0: Yeah, I'm still trying to get my copy. This is like literally the, I guess now at this point, the second convention I've been to where I couldn't pick up a copy of Root because... It flies off the shelf. So if you get a chance to play it, definitely do so. And you can listen back for Anthony's full review. All right, Anthony, so let's actually talk about the games that we did get to the table, the first look hotness, the things that really, really impressed us out of all the games out there. We did mention, once again, our revised title, Azul Stained
1: Glass. (laughs) What did you think in a little bit more detail? And don't forget to mention the candy. This game goes in the top shelf. Keep it away from the kids. They need to put a sticker on the box. Um, You guys can use us if you want. And we're not joking
0: about that. It does look like delicious candy that your kids might actually try to eat.
1: Yes. Yeah. And break their teeth on. Um, Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Azul stained Glass. uh, I, I agree with what you were saying earlier. I think this is better than the original Azul. I think it offers more interesting decisions, more variety of decisions without making the game longer or too much more complex. People who like the lightness and accessibility of Azul maybe won't want a little bit extra, but... For me, as a strategy gamer and with my game group, where this game already gets played a lot, I, I'm very, very uh, excited about this. So I bought it. So obviously it's a buy for me. I, I'm looking forward to getting this at table. And I'm hoping people don't get weird about it. Because, you know, sometimes when you have a slightly different or upgraded version of a game that people already like, it's hard to get to the table. Um, but I'm going to push it hard because I do like this one quite a bit.
0: Same for me. Azul was a game that's been in and out of my shopping cart many, many times I never pulled the trigger on it after playing the stained glass version of it. I went right away to uh cool stuff and picked up a copy. So it is absolutely a buy for me as well. All right, Anthony, so let's get into the heavy stuff. Once again, Ted you've already purchased this game. It's a buy for you. You love it. And uh, I'm guessing you want other people to
1: run out and pick this one up as well. I think so. I mean, it's, It's one of those games that just struck me and it happens every now and then you play a game the first time and you're like, I need to play this again and again and again and again and again. Right. And it's thankfully it comes with a fantastic solo bot. It comes with a fantastic solo bot developed by uh, David Turchi, which allows me to play it again and again and again if I want to. But I think any game like this that has depth and a little bit of weight to it, but the basic core idea is just very simple it's a rondelle you have three dice you move them around you stop on one of eight spots you take that action boom 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 there's not there are some intricacies in terms of like how you retire your workers they ascend, how the eclipse works for the scoring but overall it's very straightforward there's not a ton to wrap your head around and that make, that makes it quick and easy and accessible and once you know the game it takes like 90 minutes to play which on top of everything else is, is a huge plus.
0: Yeah, for me, the game almost didn't meet for me, the game really didn't meet expectations. It was a little too simplistic as far as what you had to do in order to build up the temple. The main rondelle was fine, but it didn't really offer new tiles or new ways to play as far as replayability is concerned. I liked it. I just didn't love it, and that kind of disappointed me a bit. I do hope to get this game to the table. It's a play for me, and I definitely will get a chance to hopefully play this game in the future. All right, Anthony, let's talk about a game that we both were surprised with, Forum Trajan by Stefan Feld.
1: Yeah, so I talked about Stefan Feld's first new game, Carpe Diem, uh, a few weeks back, and this was the other one on my radar, Forum Trajanum. Uh, It's not out in the U.S. yet. It's coming from Stronghold, I think, like January, February next year. And it looks much nicer, much higher quality components, a little prettier, some Michael Menzel artwork there. But the game itself is is very much on par in that bucket with Carpe Diem in terms of it's relatively abstract to its theme. There's a lot of different bits and things happening. The core idea of the game is relatively simple. You have a board full of little tokens on a grid. You are going to take two of them off on your turn. And it's based on these cards you draw that tell you which rows and columns you can draw from. You flip them over, you see what they are, you keep the one you want, you pass the one you don't want to the person on your right, and then you're gonna end up with two because you'll get one from your left. You then choose which of these you're going to do as your action on that turn. You can also spend some resources to do both if you really want to, but it's kind of expensive to do that, so you can only do that a few times per game. And then you do that action. Sounds simple, right? It. This rule book was a nightmare. <laughs> like. And this is one of those situations where I wish someone had been around to teach us because it is not a complicated game, but the it's it's Stefan Feld at his most Stefan Feld with mini game over here, mini game over here, mini game over here, one basic core mechanic in the middle that kind of ties all these mini games together and all these little bits and pieces you have to try to remember and yet it just doesn't really gel fully. You know, some of his games get like this where it's just Everything's fine, but it just doesn't quite come together smoothly. It's not elegant. you know. It's a little messy. It's a little choppy, and the rules kind of reflect that. So while at the end, the game was relatively basic and straightforward, and I don't hate it, it was definitely not my favorite Feld, uh, at, at, not even my favorite Feld this year. So I don't know. What did you think overall?
0: I would echo your comments, and I would say that the abstract nature of the game that was disappointing wasn't the fact that it's an abstract, therefore I don't like it. It was that thematically, there, was re- there wasn't there was really any flow to the game, and it just didn't thematically play out. Now, Feld is typically known for his point salad, so I wasn't tremendously surprised. But, you know, the typical mechanic of you pick two of these tiles to play, you flip them over, you pass one, and then you have a choice of these two. But you know, these workers come into play. So it did have a little bit of an element of Bruges to it and a little bit of an element of Castles of Burgundy to it. But overall, it was just a fine, basic, generic Feld that I think is eventually going to get forgotten because, you know, he's just got better games out there. So it's fine. It's, it's, It's a play, but it's really not much more than that. All right, Anthony, so let's talk about something that is hotly anticipated by a lot of people. The Kickstarter recently wrapped up. It has at least what it proposes is probably going to be one of the biggest, most elaborate productions
1: out there, Barrage. Barrage, yes. This is, I mean, I'll be honest, I was extremely excited for this game. It's designed by... Simone Luciani, along with Tommaso Batista, who is a first-time designer and an engineer, um, which is important, which you'll find out in a minute why. And Luciani is one of my favorite designers, and for good reason. A lot of good games he's worked on. Um, And this game doesn't really feel like one of his games. So I think definitely a strong design partnership here. Maybe Batista had, had a game idea and they worked together, whatever it was. This game is definitely... A little heavier, a little tighter, a little meaner. When we sat down as halfway through the game, I was like, oh, this almost reminds me of like what an 18xx game feels like in terms of how tight it is and how easy it is to fall behind if you're not careful. Uh, and it's not an 18xx game, but it has a lot of the same kind of ideas or thoughts to it in, in terms of what you're trying to do. Basic idea here is you're building dams. It's a game about hydroelectric power and building dams. There is some kind of funky theme thrown on the top of it. Like, this is like an alternate 1950s world where technology has, you know, advanced to this w- certain degree based on the ability to harness hydroelectric power in new ways. But really, what you have is a map full of water flowing down and dams that you're going to build to try to generate electricity. How you do that, though, is very interesting. You have your own little construction wheel, you're going to spend resources to take certain actions to build things you put those in the wheel you turn the wheel those resources are now locked until you turn the wheel back and they unlock Uh, you can do that by taking various actions or you can take a special action on the board which lets you move the wheel x number of times Um, there's also contract cards that let you move the wheel or generate resources or do all sorts of other stuff based on the power you have the vast majority of the actions you can take other than building stuff are on a board in the middle of the table. So it is kind of a worker placement type of game. You have 12 of those workers. A lot of these actions cost more than one, so you have to kind of balance out how you use them. And it's very, very tight. What you're trying to do with all these different actions you have is to put dams on the board so you can collect the water that's gonna flow down every round, make those dams bigger so it can collect more water, and then connect your dam to a power plant that you build. And then there needs to be some kind of conductor there. It doesn't have to be yours. It can be someone else's, but someone there to operate all this stuff. It is difficult to do all that. (laughs) You have to plan very far in advance. You have to know what you're trying to do. You have to know what your opponents are trying to do. And people are going to cut you off, you know, and the higher up on the board you try to build, the more expensive it gets. So it's difficult just to jump to the top of the board and say, all right, I got the top spot. I'm always getting water because it costs a whole bunch of resources to do that. And, I made the mistake in our game of starting in the middle, and then immediately people were right above me. Uh, based on, you know, they had powers. This was Chris, by the way, had powers to get himself up there for cheaper. I don't blame him for that, but it meant that my entire first turn was kind of wasted because I couldn't use that dam for a couple rounds until I, you know, built a workaround. That is how the game works, you know, and it's that's what it's meant to be. So it is very tight. If you fall behind, if you don't plan, if you don't know what you're doing early on, and you make these poor decisions, it reminded me a little bit of how I felt playing Food Chain Magnet, where the first one or two times I played that game, I was like, I don't really know what I'm doing. And then by an hour in, I'm like, I know I'm losing. I know I'm going to lose. There's no way to come back, because I've made, you know, XYZ poor decisions early on. It's that kind of game. So I don't know what I think of it yet. But on the other side, I love Food Chain Magnet. Once I finally. Got all that stuff down and in my head. But my first play of Barrage was not great because I, I made those poor decisions early. Mechanically, though, very interesting.
0: Never go in against a Sicilian when death or hydroelectric power is at stake. And you <laughs> did. And I dammed up your dam by damming your dam with cheap dams. So <laughs> I don't know. Oh, man. You were damned, but nonetheless, yeah, it was a special ability that I had for my character, but everyone has special ability. What was fun about the game was each individual player board had different rewards when you removed the different dams and hydroelectric power that was being placed onto the board. So think Terra Mystica in that respect. In addition to that, you had your special player power that would benefit you as well so a lot of different player powers that were in play so there was some asymmetrical gameplay in here but not so much that it threw the game completely out of whack it was a very heavy crunchy strategic euro game as anthony mentioned leaning into the 18 double x way of playing you had to be aggressive and kind of capitalize when you could it was a tight game it was a lot of fun And the copy that we played was a very cheap demo copy. I'm not complaining. I'm happy that the game was there. I think once everyone gets their super deluxe copy out there, I think it is enjoyable. As Anthony said, it is tight. It is aggressive. And, you know, maybe it's the nature of that industry. So a lot of fun there. All right. Now, talking about... The Power of Water here Anthony. Let's talk about a game that we tried to get to the table multiple times throughout
1: the convention, Underwater Cities. Yes, Underwater Cities. This is a uh, by Vladimir Suchi. This was a big hit at Essen. So much so that I actually ordered a copy <laughs> that's somewhere in the Atlantic right now on a boat. It had a lot of buzz. Like I didn't know a ton about it despite ordering the game. Just I saw it, it looked interesting. I didn't know that it was, you know, people were buzzing about it. But we get there and we keep asking them, what are you playing? What are you interested in? What are you playing? And people say, oh, you got to check out Underwater Cities. You got to check out Underwater Cities. So we finally, like Sunday morning, friend of the show, Kyle, he ran over there while we were getting some food. He sat down with his friend and they started reading the rules. We got over there, kept reading the rules. Chris went and taught Obsession a couple times, kept reading the rules. (laughs) I ate some food, kept reading the rules. And eventually we got through the rules. There was nobody there to teach us the game. But it's funny because it's not a complicated game is when all things are said and done, despite the length of the rules and the length of the game. But, you know, it's in depth. You want to understand it as much as you can. And the, the game itself, once you get into it, very sleek, very smooth, very easy to understand, right? You have your own personal player board on it. You can build domes, labs, and tunnels to connect them all. You are underwater, of course. And you will be doing various things with a hand of cards to do all that. There's a board in the middle of the table. There are several different actions around the board. So there's a worker placement element here, action selection ish. Each of them corresponds to a different color of card, and there's three colors of cards. So the green, you have the most powerful cards, but the least powerful actions, the orange, you have the least powerful cards, but the most powerful actions. And so what you do is you pick an action. And if you have a card of that color, you can play the card and you get to do both things, which is pretty cool. And so what you're trying to do is you build a tableau of stuff. And some of these cards have ongoing effects. Some of them have action effects. Some of them have production and scoring effects. And if this all sounds familiar to you, it's because, yes, this game is a lot like Terraforming Mars. But it does a lot of things different and interesting that Terraforming Mars doesn't do. Some of the gaps and issues that people do have with that game. One, it limits your options. You only ever have three cards in your hand. And so you have to pick one of those actions. You always refill to three. You always discard down to three. Only ever have three. Two, you have your own player board. So you're not dealing with that annoyance of everybody's trying to build up, you know, all of the global objectives and maybe two people are ignoring it. and It makes the game last five hours. Now, this is a long game. It takes about 15 minutes per round and there's 10 of them, which seems to be what it averaged out to. So you're looking at about three to four hours, depending on people's thinking and with teaching. But at the same time, it is very, very sleek and uh, it, there's not a ton of options for you to get bogged down in you know you're not looking at a hand of 12 cards like in terraforming mars and trying to program them out which is fun it's fun i mean it's one of my favorite games but underwater cities does something different with all that um mechanisms i really really liked this i was really disappointed we didn't get a chance to completely finish the game i think we had a couple rounds left when uh people had to leave the table but I'm excited to get it to the table. This was probably my favorite game. One of the one maybe one of the two or three favorite games I played at PAX all weekend. And I think it's going to be a huge hit when it finally hits uh, the US. This is one of my favorite designers.
0: So I often talk about Shipyard being one of my favorite games. Last Will, Prodigal's Club, fantastic, innovative type of games. Yes, there is a lot of terraforming Mars here. And that's a very, very good thing because if you don't play Terraforming Mars, you'll probably kind of sail through this game. No pun intended. And I really enjoyed it. What I really liked about the game was you had your own personal board that you could build up. You could build up your own technologies. There were so many different chaining operations to the game. Really nice artwork. I'm not too sure about the production level. It seemed, you know, a little bit under. Once again, unfortunately, think Terraforming Mars But hopefully when we get these copies to the U.S., maybe they'll be a little more upgraded. If not, it's still a phenomenal game. I was blown away by it. I was so happy to get a chance to play this. It's absolutely positively a buy. As soon as I get a chance to see this somewhere on the market, I'm definitely picking this game up. Also, we had a chance to play Smartphone Inc. This was a very, very different
1: game. And a big surprise for both of us. Yeah, yeah. This was just, um, I think we were just kind of wandering the hall, trying to find something to do. I was off doing I don't remember what. And so you guys sat down and Eddie picked up the rule book. And thank you, Eddie, because he read this thing. Um, It didn't take nearly as long as getting through that Underwater Cities book. This is a game about building a company that sells smartphones. So you are basically playing a game of supply chain logistics, which doesn't sound very fun, but guess what? The game's pretty fun. It, the basic idea here is you have um, a set number of locations on the map, it's a global map, and you are trying to build a presence in those places and then sell your phones to those places based on your current pricing and the different technologies you've researched. And the way that you do all that is that you have these two tiles, each of which has, uh, I believe they're three by four, So they have 12 different squares in them. Uh, Some of those squares have action tiles on them. Some of them don't. And what you do is you take the two tiles and you overlap them a little bit. And whatever's showing is the total action points for each of those different actions you get to take each round. You also get some upgrade tiles that you can purchase throughout the game. I think you start with one upgrade tile that you can layer over those to change the actions that are visible. But that's what you're doing. And then you go kind of through this sequence where you're running these different actions you're producing the phones you are moving the the shipping action you are building your presence throughout the world you are researching technologies um, you're getting new abilities and then you are selling your phones and early in the game this is all just kind of about building up your engine and getting your technologies and getting your stuff out there and you know getting some points in the process of course. But later in the game, it's all about positioning and pricing. And if you lower your price enough, you get to go first, but you scored less when you sell. But if you raise your price too high trying to maximize your points and the map is super crowded, maybe you don't get to sell your phones. And that's actually what happened in our game is that the guy who was in the lead, Chris, Uh, he was not, not you, Chris, but other Chris, thank you. Other Chris for joining us at the game table. Um, he was ahead by 50 or 60 points, but he could only sell half of his phones in the final round because he made his price too high. And Eddie was able to come back and beat him. So, it's def like it's it's very economic, it's very interesting, but it's also very streamlined. You know, you, you hear that description and you think, "Oh, that sounds super heavy," and it's really not that heavy, right? Yeah, I really enjoyed this game. It was a fantastic surprise. It's
0: so much fun to take what is a very simple mechanic, which is you have these two cards. They're double-sided, and they have symbols on them, and you lay them over each other in such a way that some of the symbols show, some of them don't. You get the benefits of those symbols As this little round marker kind of clicks off the different things that are happening that round. So it's a little bit of planning in advance. And then you watch it play out. And it's tremendous fun. So you were like, oh, I'm selling cell phones. That seems as dry as can be. But it's so interesting and engaging. So for a game that has a very dry topic, it was really something that was very thematic. And we were all within four or five points of each other. So Smartphone Inc. is definitely a buy and something on my holiday shopping list. All right, Anthony. And finally, the game that really, for me, and I think for you too, and obviously for everybody else it received the most thumbs on BGG's list, that took the convention by storm is Obsession,
1: Pride, Intrigue, and Prejudice in Victorian England yes obsession this is a game that i didn't even want to sit down to play at first because it just didn't jump out the only reason i was up for it is because we'd heard so many people tell us that we had to go try this game out um i've been describing most of these but you taught this game at least twice that i saw so i'm going to let you kind of run through the rules
0: so what's really fantastic about this game and something that you may not notice from the start is it's so well written there's a great rule book that offers a lot of fluff and intrigue about the different characters that are vying for control and vying for reputation. Basically what you're doing here is once again you're looking at a kind of quasi universe here of Jane Austen's great work and the Fairchilds are this brother and sister couple that are, you know, on the upper crust of society and what you are doing is trying to get in on it. So you have your own family that is going to support you on attracting one of the fair to your family throughout the game and that happens several times so at the start of the game there will be something in particular that the fair are interested in it may be sporting for example so you'll look at your tableau and you'll have a number of different activities to choose from and because they're looking for sporting maybe you'll try to engage your sporting activity so you'll place that activity up there You'll pick one of your staff members, based upon what the tile requires, to activate that activity. And there'll be a number of family members that might be engaged in that activity in order to invite guests. So you might need the ladies there or the gentlemen or maybe just people in general to attend. When you pick out which members of your family or guests that will be engaging in that activity – that deck building element comes into play because those cards will have benefits that you will be able to gain throughout the game. So it might be reputation, it might be additional money, or if the guest isn't of the upper crest, it might actually be negative points, negative reputation. So at some point you might dismiss them as well. But as the game goes on, you're building a tableau of different activities that is going to score you victory points to gain you favor with the fair child building your deck up by utilizing the different special guests and the prestigious guests that come in so it is worker placement it is tableau building it is and deck building and overall it's a lot of fun and yet it never became overwhelming because it's all about building that one activity and obviously purchasing other activities from the market
1: yeah yeah this game was really surprising you know and it, it was one of those experiences where you know midway through the game i was unhappy with certain things um i'd fallen decently far behind and was having trouble getting things done but things swung not in a bad way but there was a lot more options uh left as we moved towards the later game than i expected the depth here was much greater than it initially appeared and i was able to kind of work within the confines of what was in front of me and manipulate my tableau accordingly it was a lot of fun this is not a game i expected to like at all and yet like you said as probably my, one of my favorite games that we played all weekend and uh, i think there's still copies available that's the cool thing about this like we talked about smartphone You can't really get that right now underwater cities you can't really get that right now until rio grande prints it barrage is still a year off if you didn't kickstart it but this one already kickstarted and uh the publisher. It seems to have a few copies left if you hit their website. I don't know if they're going to print this in full, if someone's going to pick it up or if it's going to come from a bigger publisher. So if it sounds interesting or if you did get a chance to play it and you liked it, maybe go check that out. We don't normally plug publishers directly to go buy their stuff, but I think it's kind of hard to find and it was really, really good.
0: All right, so that's everything from PAX Unplugged 2018. Once again, a fantastic time fantastic games thank you to everyone that joined us at the table thank you to all of our patreon backers we're gonna have some fantastic upcoming episodes on our patreon channel if you'd like to join erskine and scott at the table with us get a chance to listen to these patreon back episodes check us out at patreon.com backslash bga let your friends and family know about this great podcast and everything we do to help guide you to the best games at the table Until next time, this is Chris, and this is Anthony, and we'll save you a seat at the table.